this generation, they want instant gratification. Five different places in five years and then open their own restaurant when they're 26. You know, you don't, you really don't get comfortable at a restaurant until a year. You know, I would say two years is where you kind of get comfortable in understanding the style of a restaurant and what a chef wants. So the fact that, you know, a lot of people do stages and, you know, just jump around, you're building a resume, but you're not really becoming a good cook. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 93 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. This week, my guest is Chef Chris Kajioka from Miro and Papa Kurtz in Honolulu, Hawaii. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed American culinary leaders. We talk about their path to success, their challenges, and how their cultural background influences their creative process. Please follow us wherever you are listening to podcasts and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, flavorsunknown.com. If you are on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can follow us at Flavors Unknown. I had the chance to dine at Miro in Honolulu and meet Chef Chris Kajioka. Miro is a French-Japanese restaurant created in partnership with Chef Murad Lalou from San Francisco, featuring local ingredients. We talk about his mentors, Roy Yamaguchi and Jean-Marie Josselin, who I had both on my podcast, Ron Siegel and Thomas Keller. Chef Chris Kajioka shares his passion for Japan, his favorite food spots in Honolulu, and the importance of cooking with quality ingredients. Hello, our chef, and mahalo for taking time out of your schedule you know, to talk to me. So welcome to uh, the podcast Flavors Unknown. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I came to your restaurant, Miro, in Honolulu in, in October it was 2021. And I have to say, I had an amazing experience with your six-course tasting menu. But I would say from my point of view, like anchored in French techniques with Japanese you know, flavors and, and featuring local ingredients. So how, how would you describe you know, your food concept at Miro? First of all, thank you. A little background, this restaurant, the reason why it's called Miro Kaneki is that this restaurant existed for 22 years and it was called Cafe Miro. And it was run by a Japanese chef who, you know, is from Japan, but he was cooking kind of like a French Japanese menu. And, you know, I would go here when I was a kid. It was open for 22 years and it was kind of a prefix, you know, French, kind of a neighborhood restaurant, but a little, little nicer. And this is actually the neighborhood that I grew up in. So, you know, we would come here a lot. And, you know, he was basically looking to retire. I mean, 22 years running a restaurant, I, I, you know, it's, we all know how hard, that, how hard that is. So he, he reached out to a mutual friend of mine and he basically just asked me, does, does Chris want to buy it? 
take it over. And to be honest with you, you know, I wasn't looking to do a restaurant at that point, but I was just curious and I was like, oh, send me the lease. I saw the lease and I was like, oh my God. You know, it's like one of those like unicorn leases. So yeah, the, the, I looked at the lease and, you know, the lease was, it was just a way below market lease. And, you know, it was, most leases now hey, I have percentage rent and, you know, the, the landlord really tries to squeeze every little penny out of a, a tenant. But this is just so straightforward and favorable. So, and, you know, I've always wanted to open a restaurant in the neighborhood that I grew up. So it was, it was kind of a no-brainer. Now that you decided to open that, you know, that restaurant, what was then the concept that you, that you created? Obviously, my food, you know, leans more towards, uh, I've trained French, French training through my whole career. And, you know, I think the older I get, the more I'm inspired by Japan. I'm Japanese. And, you know, I've, I've been traveling there now off and on for about eight years pretty religiously. And, you know, that's pretty much where I get my inspiration nowadays. You know, the concept really came, it was kind of a, a continuation of what he had before. You know, he was a Japanese chef trained in France and kind of did the whole French Japanese cuisine. So it was basically a continuation of what he was doing. Two interesting points that I want to dive into. One is your French cooking, you know, and techniques background. And then the second one is the Japanese inspiration. So the, the first one on the French cooking. So you did go to the, uh, the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park. You spent like four years over there. Can you tell us a little bit what those four years like brought to you? It was crazy because, you know, in, in high school, I worked, I worked for Roy Yamaguchi. And it was purely all voluntary. And Roy was a big, is a big CIA graduate and, you know, basically told me that you should go to that school. At that time, you know, it's still considered probably the best school. And what, what was interesting about it is that I started two weeks after 9-11 happened. So it was 2001. My start date, I believe, was October 1st, 2001. So obviously the world was a crazy place. I had just graduated high school and, you know, I obviously my, my mom was a little scared that I was going straight to New York uh, as an 18 year old, right? During that time. But in fact, you have al like, almost like the same experience that Roy Yamaguchi had because he went as well to the Culinary Institute, you know, when he was young and left his, you know, parents and family and spend, you know, the, the years over there. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, very similar. So I, I basically, you know, I, I stayed there for, I got my bachelor's degree there. And for me, I always believed that the farther away from, from Hawaii I, I was going to go, the more uncomfortable I was going to be. And, you know, I always think that the only time that you really grow is when you're uncomfortable, right? So I knew I would grow up, you know, mentally. And being homesick, I felt like, you know, it, it matured me a lot faster. Do you think that you could have achieved what you became today without attending the CIA? I think a lot of people, you know, talk about, you know, school debt, right? And, you know, not going to culinary school and just working. You know, I think there's a path for, for, for all people. For me, you know, the CIA allowed me to have kind of like a rigid schedule. You know, you had to get up at a certain time. 
you have to dress in a uniform. And, you know, as an 18-year-old, you know, on the other side of the world, basically, that was good for me, you know? It was good discipline. If you're a kid going to school in New York, you, you really don't want to you want to waste the opportunity, right? So it was great for me, as well as you have access to New York City, which is, you know, at the time is probably the best food city, you know, at that time. So it was it was invaluable for me, just the experiences that I was able to to gather. And so now when you are, you obviously you're managing restaurants and so on, and you're hiring people. So when you are looking at, uh, you know, someone's background, is the education, you know, in culinary school important? Or is it as well like the different places that uh, those people have been at? It's a good question. I think more so now I hire, school is definitely a good thing. You know, it shows at least you have a base, but I'm more probably likely to hire somebody with like no experience versus somebody who's been through, you know, one year in this kitchen, one year in this kitchen. You know, a lot of my, all my cooks in Miro came straight from culinary school. You know, they, they were actually all in the same class. So they all have kind of like a blank template, you know? And to me, that's the best because, you know, we can mold them into how we want them to be. You know, so to me, I hire on attitude and I, I, that's pretty much it. You know, if we can teach them the basics, we can teach them skills, you know, but you can't teach a good attitude. Is it something that uh, you inherited from your time with Thomas Keller at, at Per Se, which is the idea of, uh, you know, but this approach of the idea that you can, in fact, mold someone and, you know, almost make them learn, you know, like the culture of like, um, you know, a company or like a restaurant and mold them the way you, you want? That's a great question. You know, I was, I was at Per Se, I think in 2008. And I would say that was probably the, the really golden years of that restaurant. You know, I worked with Matt Orlando, David Breeden, Kim Floresca, Tom Sellers. Our, our team was it was incredible. You know, every person who worked there now is someone who's incredible, you know, and it was definitely the most stacked kitchen I've ever seen. And, you know, no matter who you are, when you step into that kitchen, no matter if you've worked at a three-star before, you know, it's, it's almost like the military, right? They try to break you down and then build you up in their style, right? And is it a good thing? I, I, th I think it's a great thing. Obviously going through it, it's, it's tough, right? talking about being uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable every day, you know, making sure, just wondering if I'm going to be able to set up on time, you know? And, you know, I've seen, like you said, people with, with amazing resumes who also had bad days there, you know? It was an eye-awakening experience, but it kind of almost makes you so tough after that anything after is kind of easy, So what did what did you learn beside that from uh, from your years at uh, with Thomas Keller as you know because I'm guessing this is one of your mentors correct Yeah absolutely you know number one discipline you know everyone you can tell you can tell who who, who has worked in a in a in a Keller kitchen you know everything needs to be the cutting of the tape to label the way you label right the way you hold your side towel 
it's just everything. You know, it's 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 more almost building how you will be as a chef, you know? And really the food the food is become secondary. It's building building a great chef, a great cook first. Because you know the food was always changing. Every day we wrote the menu for the next day. It he it just taught you discipline, you know, it's the most disciplined atmosphere I've I've ever been in. So is it uh, like the idea of building almost like a, a muscle memory, you know, like repeating uh, the same gesture, you know, over and over again at different stations and so on? 100%. You know, and, and every day, you know, you try to do something a little faster than the day before, right? So if you're, you know, you're cutting a can of chives, you try to do it a little faster. And, and every day, you know, if you work on it, you know, it, it seems to get easier and easier, you know? And then that's where that's where you can start the growth, you know, you can see just you being more comfortable, you know? So you talked about, you know, people like um Roy Yamaguchi, you know, that I had on the on the podcast. And before we talked about Jean-Marie Jocelyn as well. So are you still connected with them? And um, you know, what what comes to mind when you think about those, you know, those two uh, great chefs in, in Hawaii? Absolutely. You know, Roy, Roy is still a mentor of mine. You know, I see him very, very often. You know, Hawaii is very small. You know, I, I constantly call Roy just for general questions I have, opening another restaurant, you know, because he's been through it all, right? And he's seen me, he's seen me as a teenage kid. He's seen me, you know, come coming back after New York experience. He's seen me open my first restaurant. And he's seen me open my second restaurant, you know, and, um, you know, he, to this day, he's been nothing but, but just genuine and, and giving towards me, you know, Jean-Marie, I, I don't get to see very often just because he's on Kauai, but, you know, that was my first chef. Yeah. Oh, really? It was your first chef? First chef. Yeah. I was, I think it was 14 or 15. He just, all he could do was encourage me, you know, he encouraged me to, to give my all to, you know, at that point, it wasn't in vogue to be a chef, right? It was still very mm -hmm. hard work. Yeah, blue-collar job. Blue-collar. There was no food network was kind of a thing. But, you know, he still is cooking, you know? He's like that old school, you know, where he's still cooking. He's still be at the pass. He's yeah. still cooking behind, you know, his, uh, you know, this open kitchen. You know, every, I had the chance to go there like probably every year. And uh, and you know spend time with him and so on and he's still in the kitchen. It's, it's like uh, you yeah. know it's a small you know uh, restaurant. I'll tell you, he still kind of looks the same too. So <laughs> amazing. <laughs> amazing. We have know? more gray, more gray hair same. now. Yes, yeah, yeah, a little more gray. But <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you, for me, I've always wanted to work for chefs who are very active. My mentor, who I worked for after culinary school, Ron Siegel. Ron is a, is just, he's just a legend, you know? And I don't think a lot of people know, but he was the first, first sous chef of the French Laundry. That was the reason why I went to Per Se. I worked for Ron for about two and a half, three years. And to this day, you know, he's a one star restaurant called Madcap in Marin, but that guy works every service. He, he basically taught me, I would say everything I know. My, my success is because of him. And everything you know, sorry, from uh, from uh, technique standpoints or from uh, 
let's say, more like a, a management standpoint? What, what did you learn from him? You know, I worked at, so back then it was the dining room at the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco. And this is when, you know, it was probably that and the French Laundry was the, were the two, I would say, the best restaurants in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. You know, at that point, we had four stars in the Chronicle. You know, we had every every accolade. And this was 2005. He was doing the French-Japanese. He's really the guy who opened my eyes to amazing Japanese product. He was doing it first, you know, because he, he was on the original Iron Chef back in the early 2000s, I think. And so he had access to Japan. And so we used, you know, only Japanese soy sauce. We use fresh wasabi. This is 2005. Now, this is like what's so in vogue, right? So, you know, I was I was making, you know, dashis and all these things back in early 2000s. And now that's what everybody makes, you know? So, you know, Ron, Ron is what he opened my eyes to that, that kind of, I want to say fusion, but having a very French base, you know, but using local, the local produce, but with Japanese, you know, technique and also flavors. Very much what you are doing at, uh, at Miro today still, correct? 100%. Now, going back to the inspiration, you said the inspiration comes from Japan and you go there very regularly. Are you born in Hawaii or are you born, where are you born in Japan? I'm actually fourth, fourth generation. You know, we traced, my, my dad's side is from uh, Kumamoto. So, you know, we've had a hard time finding where my mom's side is from, but my parents consider themselves from Hawaii, you know? Even though you know we're, we're Japanese, so where do you go when you go to when you go to Japan? So um, obviously Tokyo, I guess. But what are like the other places that you find inspiration from? You know, honestly, every time I go, I just I I, I can't seem to get out of Tokyo. You know, Tokyo. You know, everybody who's been to Japan, if you love food, there's no place better. There's no place better. Can you give us some example of uh, this inspiration that you you know you get from from Japan? Perfect example to me is you know when you go to say a kaiseki restaurant or or a, a kapo restaurant, you know you see a lot of clear soup, right? Almost like a like a dashi, but the way it looks, it looks so light and you know it doesn't look like it has much flavor, right? But when you when you drink it. It's like just umami bomb. And the way I tend to approach food is high flavor, a lot of umami, but not a lot of fat. So I'm sure I mean, when you eat at Miro, we don't use a lot of butter at all. We use actually a lot more olive oil, but we also use a lot of citrus, like lemon juice, lime juice, vinegar. So I like to have high impact flavor, but not so like heavy, you know, so you don't feel so bogged down when you leave. So how do you bring the, uh, the umami character? I'm guessing on the dashi, you, you use like the combo, the combo dashi, for instance, but what, what other elements are you playing with for, for the umami character? We use a lot of obviously bonito, a lot of kombu, but you know, everything that we cook in the restaurant comes off the charcoal grill. We don't saute anything. We, we, if you look at our kitchen, it's very, very small. So everything 
everything comes off of just a small charcoal charcoal binchotan grill that we also add a little bit of a local kiabi wood just for the smoke on the flavor. So we build umami and, and, you know, normally when we grill something, we brush either like a tare, which is, you know, like a reduction of soy, mirin, sake, just to definitely all the meats we do. We, we brush it and we just continue to caramelize it over and over. And, you know, just that depth of flavor is when you're building the umami. So obviously you have a, 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 a mural, like a, a six course tasting menu. So can you guide us a little bit on how do you create like a tasting menu? And maybe first, how often do you change? You know, how do you find you, uh, do you change completely the menu or do you rotate some courses? Every month it changes completely. And the way we, we, we approach it is there always has to be kind of a local vegetable. We always do a vegetable course or some kind of riff on a vegetable course. We try to do either like a, a salad or like a, a raw fish course because we just love it. And I think the fish here is amazing. And then, you know, we round into doing a local fish course, like a cooked fish and then a meat course. So that in that it's pretty standard. And then we always end up with just one dessert, but we always have offer like a, a pasta, kind of a changing pasta every month. And then we also offer our sardo bread, which is kind of a, you can either get it. Yeah, add it the sardo bread with the, the zatar. I thought yeah, it was like zatar, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, the zatar. So you, you mentioned you, you work with, um, you know, local ingredients. So how do you approach your collaboration with local farmers and, and fishermen? The good thing is that, you know, because our menu changes so often, it's very dynamic. So, you know, if we can only get, you know, 10 pounds of spring onions or, or 10 pounds of Caraflex cabbage, then we use it for that week or a few days. And then we just do a menu change, you know? The way we print our menu is very vague. It normally just states a protein and just a few flavor profiles. So in this sense, it doesn't lock you into a specific ingredient necessarily. I'm not one of those people who, you know, it has to be the same every day, right? If a farmer grows only so much, then that's what we'll use and then we'll change it, you know? So that, that flexibility is really what has made the restaurant a little bit more dynamic, I think. You are... Um baking the bread as well, correct? In uh, at the restaurant, this is your bread. How did you get into this, like to uh, to have like the, your own bread? Do you know the restaurant Komi in Oakland? It's a James It's a it's a two Michelin star restaurant. It's the only Michelin star restaurant in, in the East Bay. He's he, we actually just did a collaboration dinner with him uh, a few weeks ago. You know, he's from Manresa. He's 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 amazing, but. To me, he has the best bread service in, in the country. You know, his sourdough that he makes is unbelievable. So basically, uh, we're also, you know, he's like me, him, and Rod, we're like brothers. So before we opened, I told James, I was like, James, you got you to teach us how to make the bread. So basically, that he taught us how to make the bread. There, we, we tweaked it a little to deal with just how hot it is here everything proofs here a lot faster. It's a lot faster fermentation, but that's, that bread is a result of James just because I think he has the best bread. 
So that's a great uh, example of collaboration that you are describing. So is your creative process more like individual or collaborative? Do you need some time on your own, you know, to come up with some ideas? And then after that, you work with, you know, other people or do you, you know, do you collaborate or is it a mix of all of that? I think I always think about things first by myself. I have a, just like a, an iPad just filled with just ideas that I always write down, you know, after I eat out or I see something. And then it's a sit down with my chef de cuisine, Trevor, and we talk about what the farm has. He's always, he's always at the farms. He's always communicating. So then... Trevor Webb, correct? Trevor Webb, yes. So then we sit down and we just talk about, okay, this is what we want to do, you know, and this is what we have. So definitely more collaborative process now, just because you know, Trevor Trevor's amazing, super talented. He's also finding his voice too, you know. So it's important for me to let him let him find his voice, but also guiding guiding him in the way of the, of the restaurant, right? Do you have uh, at the moment in the in the creative process and so on? Do you have like a, a latest ingredient obsession, something that you are experimenting with? I wouldn't say obsession. There's a nursery here, a local nursery that has just the craziest fruit. A lot of the fruit, I want to say they're probably Southeast Asian uh, in origin, but you know, they, they there's things that I've never seen. You've never seen some of them. You can only eat the, like suck around the, the, the seed So there's not much meat, but it, it tastes like a Japanese candy. You know, it's just Trevor goes there every other week to just pick stuff. And, you know, we, we just play around with it. And I think that's what separates Hawaii is that we have really good, you know, tropical fruit. Like mango is amazing. The pineapple they grow at Frankie's Nursery is just incredible. You know, the hearts of palm is incredible. So you know, we, we try to we try to utilize those those things. Uh, for a while there, we were doing kind of a local fruit plate after dinner for people. So that was kind of fun. And you're using as well the local nuts, correct? Like the kukui nuts too. Yeah. Um, I remember nuts. they were, you had a dish with that. Those, those are super, super tasty, super nutty. Yeah. When you look at what you are doing, what do you think is most important for you? Is it technique or creativity? Ooh. I think a little bit of both, but to me, if you don't have a good product, if you don't start with good ingredients, no matter what you do to it, it's not going to work out. That's the way I look at it. And this is me training in San Francisco and New York, where, where you know, the San Francisco, the produce is, is incredible, right? There's not a better, maybe LA probably has just as good, if not better, but You know, what I was taught by, by Ron Siegel is that, you know, he would go to the market twice a week. If you can't get good product, it doesn't matter what the technique is or it doesn't matter how creative, it's not going to be as good. I guess that's how Japanese approach it too, right? Product is everything. And then if you get good product, then you can apply proper technique to it. But I would say technique is comes over creativity for me. Just because I, I, I don't think I'm very creative necessarily. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather things be cooked perfectly. Like to me, 
grilling a grilling a local kombucha with the skin is crispy and it's so medium. Like to me, that's like the best. You know, you don't. That's the most pleasurable thing is when you can properly cook a piece of fish, and it's like the skin is like shatteringly crispy, and then it's so moist. Like you, you don't need to be creative if you have that. You know, that brings a lot of joy to people. I think so. I definitely would say technique over creativity, but product first. So when you talk about techniques, you mentioned French technique, you mentioned Japanese technique. What about like inspiration coming maybe from Hawaiian cooking techniques? There's any techniques from Hawaii that uh, that you have brought into your New York cuisine and way of cooking? Uh, not necessarily. You know, I mean. Uh, Obviously, you know everyone knows the 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 emu, the you know the roast the roast roast pig in the ground. We, obviously, you can't really can't really do that here. You know, I would say even more so. You know, I've adopted. You know, my my business partner and and is Murad Lalu. You know, one of the best chefs in the country. Yeah, I've been to both, like uh, Laziza and uh, and yeah. Murad. Yeah, it's they're, great, they're, great, they're amazing. And I think the the I've brought a lot more spices into my repertoire now, a lot more layering of flavor, which is, you know, very Moroccan, you know, a lot of spices, a lot of layering, a lot of long cooked dishes. So if anything, I've, I've kind of brought that into my repertoire. And, you know, working, working with Murad was, was very intentional because that was after I worked for Thomas, after I worked for Ron. Uh, after I worked in a, a bunch of French kitchens, I wanted to see something different. And when I was at Aziza, you know, there, there's nothing more different than working at a Moroccan restaurant in San Francisco, right? And it was, it was eye, eye-opening for sure. When I listened to you talking about all the great names of people that you work with, was it part of your strategy to say after you went to the CIA to work for like the best people in the industry and spend, I'm not saying that you change often, but, you know, spend, you know, at least a couple of years or more, you know, with each of those individuals. That's part of the your strategy to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when I was in culinary school, you know, I wrote down a list of, of five people who I really wanted to work for. Two of them were Ron Siegel and Thomas Keller. The other three were, were in France, but you know, I, I it was strategic who who I picked to to learn from because I felt like their style of cooking was very interesting to me. When I look at the new generation, you know, of cooks and and when I talk to a lot of your peers, you know, there's a lot of comments at the moment that the new generation, you know, want it like quick, fast, and <laughs> there's a lot of turnaround. They don't stay very often, you know, in the same place. It's almost like the idea for them to build a resume. So what's your viewpoint on that? Oh, man. It's... (laughs) You can probably see me shaking my head. You know... Yes. (laughs) And smile. This generation, they want instant gratification. They want to work five different places in five years and then open their own restaurant when they're 26. You know? You know, you you really don't get comfortable at a restaurant like until a year, you know, I would say two years is where you kind of get comfortable in understanding the style of a restaurant. 
and what a chef wants. So the fact that, you know, a lot of people do stages and, you know, just jump around. I mean, you're not really, I mean, yeah, you're seeing, you know, ideas and you're building a resume, but, you know, you're not really becoming a good cook. The people who stayed stay at a kitchen for five, six years, you know, are really good cooks, you know? And then from there, you know, once you, I feel you have that experience of working at, at places, great places for a bunch of time, then you can go do stages and, you know, go learn ideas and such. But, you know, if you don't have that good base where you're just cooking your ass off for a few years, then I don't, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think you're going to be as successful. You got to learn how to cook. You know, you got to, it's got to be painful for a bit, I think, a little bit, you know, and you got to go through the ups and downs. During the pandemic, you pivoted, you know, at the beginning, previously, you know, it was challenging and it's still challenging for a lot of people. Have created, I thought it was a great idea, like created like a, a concept of bento boxes that became like very popular. I heard you said that I think the first day you sold like 1,000 you know, of them. So like, uh, you know, very, very, very popular. So did you continue that concept or because I, I guess it was made and delivered from the location that you have now, the second place called Papa Kurtz, correct? So I, I was curious if you, you continued or you switched completely to like the Papa Kurtz concept with, uh, you know, burgers and salmon. We were supposed to open Miro in March, 2020. I had a staff already hired. We had friends and family was four days away. Our first month, we were completely booked. And then the world shut down a week before we were supposed to open. So I'll tell you, be honest with you, it, it totally, it fucked with my mind. You know, uh, it was the most stressful, <laughs> stressful time I've ever experienced in my life. I, I just, I didn't know what to do, you know. And I think about a month after, you know, just getting over the shock, you know, we pivoted to these bentos and, you know, I wanted to do something. We could have done like upscale takeout, you know, but we hadn't even opened Miro yet. So people didn't even know what to expect, you know? So I wanted to do something completely different. Obviously during that time, more comforting things were popular. So we pivoted and we, we did that out of Miro for about six months. And, you know, it's not easy because, you know, we were doing like, 12 to 13 different items in a bento and selling a ton of them. Uh, and obviously you can't charge much for them, right? So it's not like we we're making, we weren't making any money, but it was allowing staff to stay on in the kitchen. But during that time, you know, I guess it kind of morphed into what Papa Kurtz is now, which is just kind of food for the people. You know, it's, it's food that anyone can eat at any time of day. And, you know, I think, but I think we were all happy to stop the bentos and open for normal dinner service uh, once we opened. For somebody who cooks, you know, like I guess fine dining to do something completely different, it's it's a lot more difficult. You know, it's just you're not used to, to it. Yeah, it's like a fast casual concept. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. Can you tell us what you uh, you have on the menu at uh, Papa Kurt? Papa Kurt's. The reason it's called Papa Kurtz is because it's named after a farmer who is a legendary farmer called Kurt Hirabara. And he had a farm in Waimea on the Big Island. He passed away suddenly 
uh, how long was it now? Five, maybe five years ago. And he was my best friend. He was definitely my mentor, probably one of the closest people to me. And, you know, we would talk twice, three times a week, just about everything, about life. And, you know, he had a, he had a really rare type of cancer. And literally, I was talking to him on a Monday, and by Thursday, he wasn't able to speak anymore. It was that sudden. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't think I'm I'm over it. I don't think I'm still over it, to be honest with you. But that place is, you know, it's an homage to an him. An homage to him. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's a complete passion project for me. You know, it's it's food, food that I'm proud of. It's food for the working class. But, you know, that's the reason why I did it. Is it's just, it's for him. Okay. So you, you serve like burgers. Yeah, it's it's uh it's burgers. It's a good burger. It's a, it's it's uh it's and we get our bun from a local bakery. It's kind of a smash patty, you know, we griddle like onions on it. And my favorite is like the terry burger, which is a very Hawaiian thing. You kind of glaze the patty. So what is that? It's like a teriyaki sauce. So you glaze the patty with a teriyaki sauce. So again, the umami. And then we we also make it as like a you know like a burger sauce. There's a relish, ketchup. There's a little bit of um, bonito in it, mayo. It's a really tasty tasty burger, and we serve like uh, crin- crinkle cut fries, which is super old school. And then we also serve uh, saimin, which is a it's a uniquely Hawaiian noodle dish. It's like a shrimp based kind of a ramen Hawaiian ramen kind. Yeah, kind of. But there's no meat in it. It's just like a it's like a dashi with with dried shrimp, and then you serve it okay. with like egg, choy sum, like pork belly. It's a very like to me, it's a very comforting dish, very Hawaiian. Okay. Oh, going back to your burger, you said you have mayo. Is it a cupy mayo that you are using in there or no? Well, we don't use cupy mayo, but we make we add a little of a bonito powder to it, it's just so. Okay. Okay. You know, there's there's. It's pretty punchy. It's good. You know, I always try to sneak in a little bonito everywhere. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was fascinated when I was in uh, in Japan is to see on uh, some of the open market, you know, them like making like the in front of you like the flakes. In fact, yeah. from, from the, oh, yeah. the bonito. So that, that was really cool. Let me finish like the conversation with a series of rapid fire questions. So you and I are, next time I am in uh, Honolulu, are going on a tasting tour. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? Obviously, not Miro and not Papa Kurtz. You know, I will go there, obviously, but like other places that you would bring me to. So we would start uh, at a restaurant called Ethel's. Ethel's is like an old school husband, wife. They cook like riffs on like kind of Okinawan comfort food. It's amazing. They do like tuna tataki or like hamburger steak. We would go there for sure. Then we would go to Helena's for Hawaiian food. And then we would go to get, go to Izakaya called Gaku, which is uh, one of my favorite, favorite restaurants. Where else would we go to? I don't know. What do you like to eat? Oh, I like to eat like anything. So, <laughs> you know, so anything. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to, uh, I love to discover like you know new things. Uh, I can tell you like when I was in Honolulu last time, I went to 
you know, I was with friends and so on, but I think I, I'm more probably adventurous than they are. So on my own, I went to the, the Chinese, you know, district and to the market. And I had one of the best poke, you know, oh, one of yeah, the best poke, yeah. you know, on the, on the market there. That was, that was really cool. That was very good. There's also a, an amazing poke place called Tomorrow's. Tomorrow's is very good. It's like a market. You can find good poke at a lot of places. And you know that in Hawaii. There's true, poke true. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah. And then where else would I take you? I don't know. We, we probably have like a, I like to, I like to grill at my house. So I think uh, a potluck. Here you go. I would invite myself. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, at like a Hawaiian potluck, there's always like five types of starch. There's always like four types of meat. You know, it's like from every culture, right? So that's always fun is just you barbecue. I, I like to barbecue my house a lot, actually. And I like to cook Filipino food too. Yeah, the one that, uh, you know, I missed because uh, there was a, a line and uh, I didn't get like a reservation was I wanted to go uh, next to, you know, the Chinatown place, uh, the pig and the lady. Oh, I, wanted to, um, I wanted to go there, but yeah, I, I was not able to, to get to it. So next time I hope. Actually, uh, pig and lady, I think pig and lady is a must. They have another restaurant called piggy smalls as well. So if you can't go to pig and lady, piggy smalls. Yeah. I, I, we probably eat that once a month. I, I get takeout a lot. I don't know. There's there's so much. Oh, you know, I'll tell you. There's this place. It's called Mylan. It's a Vietnamese place that I actually I took I took you know Sota Atsumi from uh, from Nissan Sota. I took we their specialty is crab curry. So it's a it's a whole it's a whole Dungeness crab cooked in like this coconut curry sauce. Unbelievable. It's, a, it's amazing. That place and they serve it with baguette. It's amazing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With the French influence and the yeah, Vietnamese yeah. food, yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite guilty pleasure food? I love, I love ice cream. I love ice cream. Which flavor? You know, I, I like really good vanilla ice cream. I love ice cream and I love, I love French fries. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? Ooh. Uh, I think probably everybody says this, but the French Laundry, right? That's so yes. The book of, that's a that's a winner. I think my generation, like people around my age, that's like that was. I still look at it and just you know, it's crazy. I remember you know when I was in New York, I used to go to Kitchen Arts and Letters all the time, and I was like, I bought like the first uh, books from El Bouyi, the ones that first came out. Those are, you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily interested in that style of food, but just looking at what they're doing, you're just like, oh my God, you know, it's just crazy. Michelle Bra, the Michelle Bra cookbook, just still revolutionary, still, you know, it's still relevant even today, you know, which is uh, for a cookbook to be that old and still relevant, it's, it speaks to how special of a chef he is. What is your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? I don't like when there's a lot of stuff out. You know, I like it pretty, I don't like clutter. You know, I like everyone's station to just, you just working on one project, you know? But I also hate, I hate, 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 is when, you know, when, when produce boxes come in or like dairy boxes, those boxes get thrown away right away. I hate when they, they stack the boxes 
it's just so irritating. <laughs> so I, I always tell my prep guy, like, hurry up and throw me the boxes, you know, because it just looks so <laughs> gross. You know, it's just I don't I don't know. That's so what is um what is your next project? You know, I'm just trying to focus on what we have here, but a goal of mine has always been to open in, in Japan. And there's something going on, but too early to say really anything. But sure, sure, sure. That would be if I could just have a restaurant in Japan, that would be good for me. I would that would be yeah, I would, I would love to live there half the year. And uh so it will be Tokyo then, I guess? Either Tokyo or Kyoto, I'm not sure yet. It's between oh, those Kyoto. Two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been there. It's uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, chef Mahalo. Thank you very much for for your time. I really appreciate it. You give a lot of your time today, so thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. Exciting news. I will publish my first book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, 50 American Chefs Chart Today's Food Culture in November this year. The book is based on my collection of dialogues from the podcast with award-winning culinary leaders, combined with personal anecdotes from my food travels. It will be on pre-sale online in May or June. More to come about the book. Stay tuned. Next week, my guest will be Chef Jorge Guzman from Petit Leon in Minneapolis and Sueño in Dayton, Ohio. Chef Guzman is a 2002 James Beer finalist for Best Chef in the Midwest. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.